Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If you needed a COVID test right now, what is your strategy? Maybe you plan to go wait in line for one of those PCR tests that'll get shipped off to a lab. Maybe you've got a stash of at-home tests squirreled away in your bathroom. Or maybe, like a lot of folks, you're just hoping you're not going to need a test. I have got five little antigen tests in my house, and I'm going to parcel them out based on nothing more than a gut reaction. How bad is that headache? Just how exposed was my kid? And I'm one of the lucky ones. Even Lydia DePillis, who writes about COVID testing over at ProPublica, doesn't have a secret for how to get your hands on a nasal swab. I didn't have time to go out and get any before they were all gone uh, in the pre-holiday rush. And, you know, I I don't have kids or a family, so I didn't have, you know, I kind of didn't want to take up the supply by ordering a bunch on the internet. So I have a couple now, finally, from the free distributions in D.C., which started after the holidays um, very inconveniently, but they are around now. Lydia says the shortages you're hearing about now, especially for those at-home tests— Some people call them lateral flow tests. They're actually the trickle-down impact of all kinds of other shortages, which is what makes fixing this problem so hard. It's not just ordering up a bunch of tests. It's also saying, okay, we have factories that need to produce the nitrocellulose strips that go into lateral flow tests. We need to make sure there's capacity for producing swabs. Like, swabs are a huge bottleneck. That kind of thing should have happened right out of the gate in the Biden administration. And instead, there was a hope and a prayer that vaccines would make this all sort of unnecessary. And we now know how that played out. In the fall, you interviewed a healthcare consultant about at-home COVID testing. And it was so interesting to me because this person basically predicted where we were going to end up right now. They told you, you know, it's now fall and the pandemic's ongoing with the possibility of new variants still unknown. And it's not like you can flip a switch with the Defense Production Act and you're going to get magically more tests. You need to have this building for a while. You need to have existing infrastructure. I wonder if you look back on that conversation and are just like, wow, we really knew this would happen and we didn't do anything. So many public health experts had been saying that variants will continue to arise until the world is vaccinated or we have some other type of herd immunity. So it was basically an inevitability. Today on the show, it is pandemic year three. Why is it still this hard to get your hands on a COVID test? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The thing that stumps ProPublica's Lydia DePillis about rapid COVID testing here in the U.S. is that it doesn't have to be this way. For months, officials like Anthony Fauci and Surgeon General Vivek Murthy have advocated for expanded availability of COVID tests, especially at-home tests. And other countries, like the U.K., have made testing into a national priority. The U.K. both authorized fairly quickly a good number of tests, not a gazillion tests, but I don't, I don't have the precise number. It's in like the couple dozen range. So that there were enough on the market so that they would compete down the cost. So you can buy them privately for a few dollars. Uh, and they also bought millions and millions of tests for distribution for free. So they basically just committed to testing. They did. And I think they did that in part because they didn't have as quick access to vaccines as the U.S. did. So it was a little bit more necessary part of their COVID response strategy. And also, I mean, the U.K., like many countries in Europe, has a national health system. So there is the infrastructure to deliver tests in a more universal way. There are centralized pickups and like healthcare providers who can uh, conduct PCR tests if necessary as well. Can I get a home test like delivered if I'm in the UK? You can. Yeah, this is, yes. And these are not, again, when they're mass produced, each test costs like a, a dollar to to make. So if this was an expensive undertaking. It costs like in the, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's in the like 30 to 50 billion pound range. Like it is a expensive program to provide tests to an entire population, but it's probably less expensive than hospitalizing, you know, millions of people, which, and again, you know, testing skeptics will say, look, it didn't save the UK from various COVID waves. It didn't save them from lockdowns, but it's hard to look at that in isolation. I think most people in the UK that I've heard from say like, look, this hasn't cured COVID. There's no single intervention that will cure COVID and prevent anyone from getting it. But um, absent all of these tests, it would have been a much worse situation. We're really glad we have these. It gives us some degree of certainty and also just less anxiety about, you know, am I going to be able to get a test? Where do I go to get a test? You know, how many pharmacies do I have to go to before I find one? So I think that's why that is a very popular program in the UK um, and, and in other places as well. Yeah. And in an ideal world, how should at-home testing be working? Like, how often should we be testing ourselves, like, every day, every other day? So it really depends on your situation, you know, because the the thing that we tried to get across in our most recent story is that flooding the market with rapid tests is great. You know, they should definitely be fle- freely available 
um, to use as often as you need. But you're going to need them more often in different situations. One, for example, if you have an underlying health condition and getting COVID would be extremely dangerous for you or if you live with someone who has one. So if I'm out in the world a lot or I'm living with a high-risk person, like if I'm a school kid, if I'm an essential worker... I should be testing a lot, potentially. If I'm going out to a party, I should be testing right before the party. And so that's the vision of how we use these tests. Yeah. I mean, like, think of them like an aspirin if you, you know, have aches and pains. Like, you take it in the morning. And ideally, these things should be cheap enough that that is not unreasonable to to ask of people. And it's just a sort of regular component, like a Band-Aid in your medicine cabinet. Something that you do when you're in one of these situations where it would make sense. Um, and and it's not something that you have to hoard or ration to only use when it's an emergency. Part of the reason getting your hands on a test is so hard in the U.S. is because there's just not as many kinds available. In the EU, there are almost 40 different rapid tests on the market. In the States, there are only about 12. And that's because the approval process, spearheaded by the FDA, has been moving at a glacial pace, from the very beginning. So you've told the story of one test maker in particular, a woman named Irene Bosch, and her experience with the FDA, and a little bit about how it explains how we got to this place where at-home tests are hard to find. What was really shocking to me about that story was that she developed an at-home test for COVID really fast, like within the first few weeks of the pandemic. Can you tell her story? Yeah. So um, Dr. Bosch is a microbiologist, and she had started a company in 2018 to commercialize rapid antigen tests that she and the head of a lab at MIT had developed and published about um, that would detect tropical diseases like Zika and chikungunya and dengue. And so she realized in March, or actually February, the company realized that the the new coronavirus didn't behave all that differently. They could pick out um, antigens or antibodies rather that would detect the antigens on the surface of the coronavirus and then basically make a lateral flow test like the ones that you see today. They're, you know, not rocket science. They've been around for other types of conditions. Even pregnancy tests are basically lateral flow tests. The ones where you put the little strip and it turns a color and then you know you're positive. Right. So she made up a quick prototype um, and validated it in her lab. When was this? This was like April 2020 or May? March. March. Yep. So this is a thing that she thought would work and that, uh, you know, preliminary data showed could detect the virus when it was at its highest loads. When she went to the FDA, what did they say? So the FDA said, um, thank you for this, but, you know, we're going to need you to do clinical trials to make sure that it works in real people. Did that surprise her? I mean, it's a reasonable ask, but I think that it did surprise her because it wasn't being requested of all of the PCR tests at that time. And... It was an emergency, right? She's like, look, this thing works. I know that from the lab it works. Let's just start using it. And none of these tests were going through the full FDA gauntlet that they would require for something where it's not an emergency situation. Uh, But they're in that process. There's really no requirement of what that has to look like. Basically, the only requirement in the law, law that authorizes this situation is that, you know, the FDA determines that this device or drug will do more good than harm. 
And so she thought, well, gosh, you know, if used properly, this test, which I think is, you know, reasonably sensitive, could be very useful. And then we'll, you know, we'll get more trial data and improve the test as we go along. So when she started looking at clinical trials, what did it find? Overall, the trials found in actually multiple different studies that it was 80% sensitive, which means that it'll pick up 80% of the positive tests that a PCR test would pick up. And it was 94% specific, which means it would pick up 94% of the negative tests that a PCR would pick up. So it, it would throw off false positive results once in a while. And that is why all antigen tests usually recommend that if you get a positive, that you then go confirm it with a PCR to make sure. So she found that her test was a little less accurate than PCR. What did she say to the FDA and what did the FDA say to her? So she was trying to make the argument to the FDA that, look, my test is very accurate at detecting people with very high viral loads and people in, you know, within sort of three to seven days of contracting the disease. And if you use it frequently, it becomes very, very accurate in detecting anyone who has a disease, right? So if you take it, you know, two tests, 36 hours apart, it's almost certainly going to pick up people who have the disease. And the FDA doesn't accept data that is broken out by how much viral load people have because they think that that the way that we measure that is not uniform across devices. And they also did not accept the argument that a test could be packaged or authorized on the condition that it is used frequently in certain contexts. That's interesting to me because in some ways that seems like a practical response. It seems like the FDA saying we're not going to be able to get enough tests out there and people are not going to be testing each other all the time. And so given how people are going to use the test, we think it needs to be slightly different. Yeah, that was their attitude. And I think that that was, you know, the way this was explained to me by someone who's at the FDA um, during this time was like, look, at a time when we thought that the virus was something that could be stamped out and we really wanted to make sure we got every single infection, it might make sense to insist on having only tests that will pick up every single infection. But once you realize that COVID is going to be sort of endemic and we just, the important thing is trying to flatten the curve, slow the spread, and and protect vulnerable people. You really need a different type of tool in your toolbox. But again, this is a time when there were no rapid antigen tests on the market at all, right? And you have to ask the question of like, is a test like this, could it have been useful in certain contexts? For example, you want to keep people working in person. You make sure that they test twice a week. People who test positive immediately stay home. They never come to work at all because they could take the test at home. And that way, you keep the spread to a manageable level. And that could have been used in universities, in um, other in-person work contexts, in hospitals, in nursing homes. Like, it's important the circumstances under which a test is authorized. And that was what the FDA was sort of unwilling to see through all of 2020. We'll be right back.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. When I look at the story you're telling about testing and how we got to where we are right now, I see a few things happening at once, and I'm hoping we can go through them one by one. One thing I see happening is this paternalism at work, this idea that Americans can't understand how to test right. We can't sufficiently explain to them the fact that these at-home tests will have a different kind of accuracy than, than what they might get from a lab. And also just an idea that you need a mediator, between you and these tests. You you said that's kind of typical. Can you explain that? Yeah. So the FDA has long been hesitant about authorizing tests for use at home. It started in the 80s when uh, there were home tests for HIV available. And, you know, there was concern from different parts of the medical community that if we allow these people to just figure out whether they have HIV on their own, we don't know what they might do, right? Because there was so much stigma associated with the disease that they wouldn't be under the watchful eye of a healthcare provider to say, like, this is what this means. Here's how you can get treatment, blah, blah, blah. So home tests for HIV were banned for a long time and only recently authorized. Um, and then, you know, there's another example of home genetic testing, right? Like, 23andMe kits, which will tell you if you are predisposed to certain diseases and where you come from. Um, The FDA basically took those off the market in 2013 and didn't allow them back on until five years later. So there's like always this skepticism, which, you know, is sort of fair about people's ability to take and, and interpret tests on their own. So there's the paternalism bit, but there's something else too, which is I look at what happened here. And I see a little bit of like a hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil going on, where especially after vaccines were widely available, 
I know that I personally felt like this, but it sounds like the government did too. Like, there was just an idea that, well, we don't need testing as much. And you shouldn't need to test because you should be vaccinated. Can you explain how things changed after the vaccines came out and whether that shifted the ideas at a place like the FDA? So, I mean, the FDA's job is to authorize tests. So they weren't thinking like, oh, we have vaccines now, we don't need tests. But the White House very clearly banked on vaccines as a way to end the pandemic. And they might have been a way to end the pandemic if we had gotten everyone vaccinated, but we didn't. Even if we had in the U.S., there were still millions upon billions of people unvaccinated in the rest of the world, which, you know, public health experts and medical doctors, you know, knew and were warning would create new variants. So I think that was there was a little bit of wishful think on the part of the White House. I also think that it was part of their sort of carrot approach to getting people vaccinated is this idea that you don't have to put up with the rest of the rigmarole of life under COVID, which is like constant testing and getting squabs stuck up your nose. Like who likes that? Nobody does. So I think that was part of their argument. And it quickly started to become apparent when the Delta variant created breakthrough infections that we couldn't move to a world without testing. Testing was going to be needed in conjunction with all of these other public health measures. And by that time, however, we just didn't have the capacity in the U.S. to produce them in the volumes that would be necessary. What you're saying is that the fact that the vaccine sort of elbowed out the testing, that wasn't something that happened at the agency level. That was a political decision. It wasn't the FDA's job to come up with an overall public health strategy, right? You know, one analogy that um, Dr. Michael Minna gave, which I thought was helpful, is that the FDA is like a TSA agent. You know, they their job is to make sure that every bag coming through the conveyor belt gets a good scan and, you know, everybody's not, nobody's carrying a gun. And it's not their job to create a whole security system for the airport and to, to say what even the metal detectors should be looking for and whether or not they should make you take your shoes off, right? That's the job of someone who runs the airport and who sets priorities and 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 also makes compromises based on resource availability. And so, again, the FDA can be villainized in this whole, the outcome of this whole situation, but it really would have taken some higher level direction. I mean, for goodness sakes, the FDA didn't even have a director itself for most of 2021. So, like, even if they could have made that kind of decision, like, there was no one to make that decision. I'm curious how you'd compare the Biden administration's approach to COVID testing to the Trump administration's approach. What would you say, given what we know now? I think that the Biden administration is slightly less politically motivated and more willing to to take bad news for what it is than the Trump administration was. I mean, I think the Biden administration wasn't anti-testing. I think they just came to COVID response at a different point in the pandemic when different tools were available and didn't want their entire administration to be about managing a pandemic. And when it became apparent that that was inevitable and inescapable, they have come around to more sort of science-based countermeasures. But, you know, I think that that happened too slowly, unfortunately. And it's it's happening more quickly now. But even the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, back in, I think, April or May, was saying, we know that 
tests are still going to be required even if we have good vaccines and and, and enough Americans get vaccinated. Like Anthony Fauci was saying in March in response to questioning in a congressional hearing, yeah, absolutely, we should be flood, literally, quote, flooding the market with cheap lateral flow tests or, you know, rapid home antigen tests. I actually have been saying that for months and months and months, that we should be literally flooding the system with easily accessible cheap, not needing a prescription, point of care, highly sensitive and highly specific that we could do just what you are saying. My hope is that we don't forget about this and we build up a reasonable stockpile of tests and make sure that the capacity remains to manufacture it, even if it looks wasteful and redundant at a time with less disease, right? And this happened with PPE too, right? In times of non-emergency, it looks wasteful in our sort of just-in-time, low-inventory world to have this kind of capacity in the system. It's like redundancy. But it seems implausible that such a pandemic, such a variant, isn't going to come along again. And so never take the good times to be a permanent state of the world. Lydia, I'm really grateful for all your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure thing. Lydia DePillis reports on federal agencies over at ProPublica. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, and Carmel Del Shad. We're led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here on Monday. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles. But for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com. From the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts 
or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much.